Good morning. It's a delight to be here with you and to dive into uh, this amazing passage with you. I'm going to start this morning by uh, posing a few questions. How would you say that you spend most of your time? Contented with what you have or chronically dissatisfied? Longing for something more? Do you spend most of your time joyful or grumbling and complaining? At peace or in turmoil? Do you find yourself often confused or maybe even downright angry in the face of all the hardship and and even injustice that befalls you or people that you love? If you struggle with any of those problems, and my guess is that each of us does at some level, then you're going to want to stick with me as we examine this passage in Deuteronomy 8. We're going to touch on parts of the whole chapter, and we're also going to look a lot at the surrounding context. But our focus is going to be on the first six verses of Deuteronomy 8. This passage is part of a section of Deuteronomy in chapters 1 through 11, in which Moses is addressing Israel as they're on the, right on the threshold of entering into the promised land. And it is one of the most pivotal declarations in all of Scripture. This passage, this section of Deuteronomy, provides the foundation for hundreds of other passages in both the Old and the New Testament. It's no coincidence that when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he cited Scripture three times, and each of those three citations was from this part of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8. Satan's unsuccessful temptation of Christ and our Lord's perfect response has everything to do with the issues that are addressed in this passage. True life, true prosperity, real peace, genuine contentedness, and real blessing. These are things that clearly eluded the Israelites, but God was actively at work to teach these things to his covenant people Israel, just as he is actively at work today to teach them to us who belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. And the events that are recorded in Deuteronomy came at a most critical turning point in Israel's history. Israel had departed from Egypt after the ten plagues. And they, at this point, actually, when this, uh, when this was written in Deuteronomy, they were actually encamped on the eastern shore of the Jordan, about to cross over into the land of promise. They were, uh, they were spitting distance from the land. The, the Jordan River is not real wide. It's not the Mississippi. The distance they had to travel to get across the river was measured in feet, not miles. And so they were, they were in full view of the land that had been promised to them a very long time before. The last time they had been this close to the land had been 38 years earlier 
at Kadesh Barnea, which is on the southwest side of the land. Everybody knows what happened at that point, right? Remember the giants? They had been delivered from Egypt by God's mighty hand through the plagues, culminating in the Passover plague, and then God had divided the waters of the sea and drowned the Egyptian army in the same waters after Israel had crossed over on dry land. And a few months after leaving Egypt, the people of Israel had arrived at Mount Sinai. There they had beheld the terrifying manifestation of the presence of God on the mountain. And they had received the Ten Commandments, the law, the ordinances, and the statutes that constitute the Torah, God's instruction to His people to make known His character, His holiness. It was principle by example to show them how His character would work out in their relationship with Him and with other men. They received the law and then About 11 months after arriving at Mount Sinai, they set out toward the promised land until they came to Kadesh Barnea on the southwest border of Canaan. Deuteronomy 1 verse 2 says that that was an 11 days journey from Sinai to Canaan. By the way, the location of Sinai is anybody's guess. That spot on that map, that was designated by the mother of the emperor Constantine. She supposedly saw it in a dream. Okay, so don't stake a lot on the on the location of Sinai. Kadesh, we that archaeologically we're pretty sure where that is. But that journey of eleven days plus one, basically, to get up to Kadesh and then across into the promised land had had turned into forty years, about thirty-eight years to be precise, from the time that they left Sinai. Why? Why forty years? Because Israel feared giants more than they feared Jehovah. Yahweh. Now, as the events recorded in Deuteronomy unfolded, they were once again at the threshold of the land, not on the western, on the, not on the western border, but on the eastern border of the Jordan River. And that first generation that had been delivered from bondage in Egypt had passed away during those 40 years. Of those who had been adults at that time, At the time of the Exodus, only Moses, Joshua, and Caleb remained, and even Moses was going to die by God's hand before Israel crossed the Jordan into the land. There had no doubt been many, many times when the Israelites, indeed when every single Israelite, questioned the purpose of God in the things that happened to them during that time. Moses certainly had questioned. They knew why they were prohibited from going into the land. God had made that crystal clear. It was because of the giant thing. They they feared the inhabitants of the land more than they feared God. But why the wandering around in the desert for all this time? Why the manna from heaven? Why the water from rocks? God's lesson for Israel went far beyond chastising them for their lack of faith the first go-around. And as is always the case with our God in dealing with His covenant people, there is grace and mercy even in the midst of His acts of judgment and chastisement. 
Here in Deuteronomy 8, God lays his cards on the table and he tells his people things that you might not expect a king to tell his subjects. He removes first, he removes all doubt about his object lesson for Israel during those 40 years. And every word of what he tells them is as relevant to us today, and I'm talking to the young people here as well as as the oldest among us. What's in this passage is as relevant to us today as it was to Israel when they first received it. This stuff is critically foundational. We who belong to Jesus Christ and who seek, who desire to enter fully into the blessing and the riches that belong to us as joint heirs with Jesus Christ need to pay very careful attention to God's words in this passage. If we do not, then we will without a doubt miss the blessings that God has already poured out upon us in our Savior. The words of God through Moses in this chapter go to the heart, as I said, of true provision, true well-being, true life. Would you like to lay hold of those things? Then stay with me, because we're going to dig in. The first six verses, when taken as a unit, begin and end with the same essential command. God says, all the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go into the land and possess it, the land which God swore to give to your forefathers. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. By the way, every time you see, of course, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh. That is the covenant name that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. He gave it to Moses when Moses beheld him in the form of the burning bush. And God said, I'm going to use you to free my people from Egypt. And Moses said, okay, who am I to say is sending me? And God gave him this name. These two statements of the commandment in verse 1 and verse 6 are essentially the same. You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. And in doing so, you will experience the blessing that I have for you. There's a conditionality here, as there is with the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant. And the promise, the, the command comes with a promise and it comes with a warning. First, the promise. Right there in verse 1, God's conditional promise is, if you obey my commandments, then you will live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. The warning is in verses 19 through 20, toward the end, right at the very end of the chapter. In fact, the warning part of this passage is all of verses 7 through 20. But the heart of the warning is in verses 19 and 20, and God says, It shall come about if you ever forget Yahweh your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify to you, I testify against you today, that you shall surely perish. Now guys, this isn't talking about eternal life and eternal death. It's talking about dying and not being able to live a long time in the land. 
Like all the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. So God would do the same thing to them that he's about to do through them to the, to the Canaanites if they neglected his commands. There's also, so there's a, there's a command, there's a promise, there's a warning, and then there's a call to remember. Uh, first though, in the, well, in this call, God says, starting in verse two, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. And then he, he starts talking about what he did, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we're going to talk about the what and the why. Because God actually tells Israel, when I, when I talked about the sovereign king telling his people more than they would normally need to know or normally get to know, God actually tells Israel what he has been doing with them, and he tells them why he's been doing it. He tells them what, what his purpose in doing it has been. First, the what. Well, there are a few pieces to the what. The first thing is this phrase, God led you. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Israel would have known what that meant. Because God had directed their steps by means of a cloud by day and a, and a fire by night that resided over the tabernacle when they were encamped and that went before them with the ark when they were moving from place to place. The Israelites for 40 years didn't need maps. They didn't need directions. They didn't need anyone to tell them where to go or even when to go from one place to another. They didn't need to, to guess about where they were to set up camp or how long to stay there. Because the fire and the cloud would go before them and they would simply follow. And when it stopped, they stopped and they camped. And by the way, guys, the fire and the cloud didn't provide previews. They didn't get to know what was going to happen, you know, three or four months down the road. All they got to know is, okay, it's moving, so we move. It stopped, so we stopped. God gave them just enough of his directing for them to know what to do today. That in itself is a significant thing to consider. In verse 3, God reminds them that in addition to this, this miraculous leading, that he provided food for them miraculously every single day for 40 years. The only reason they didn't starve to death in the desert and cease to exist as a nation was because God gave them manna from heaven for food six mornings every week with a double portion on the sixth day to carry them over through the Sabbath because they were not to gather on the Sabbath. And just as with the cloud and fire that gave them only what they needed to know that day to take the next step, God gave them just enough food for each day. Not too little, not too much. Later in the chapter, in chapter 8, Deuteronomy 8, verse 15, sorry, I missed a couple of slides here. In chapter 8, verse 15, we find that not only did God give them the food that they needed, he gave them water. And as you may know, if you've studied Exodus and Numbers 
there were a couple of times where the narrative specifically talks about water coming from a rock. Israel didn't have to worry about finding wells in the wilderness to avoid dying of thirst because wherever they went, not just once or twice, but everywhere they went, God gave them water from rocks. And in Psalm 78, we find out that that water wasn't just in small measure. It wasn't just a cup here and a cup there. It was abundant. The psalmist says that God split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused water to run down like rivers. What a picture. They're in this thirsty ground, this dry place, this desert for 40 years, and they never lack for water. In fact, they have running water. (laughs) They have abundant flowing water. The, uh, and there's some other passages that talk about that. Okay, my flipper is dying. Who's up there? John, can you... Uh, seems like I'm losing my connection down here or something. What slide is it on now? Oh, yeah. The flipper's fine. It's just my computer down here that's bad. All right. Give me a second. I'll have to look behind me. So we talked about the leading, we talked about the manna, we talked about the water. And then there was the clothing in Deuteronomy 8, verse 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Deuteronomy 29.5 says, not only did your clothes not wear out on you, your shoes did not wear out. 40 years, guys. Now, do you think... That desert sand is easy on footwear? No. Every step you take is like striking the bottom of your sandal with coarse grit sandpaper. And the sand gets in and around your toes and it wears at the thong, you know, the, the strap of the sandal. Can you imagine a pair of sandals lasting 40 years? My running shoes have to be replaced about every six to eight months, even when I'm not consistent with running, which is most of the time. God had taken care of his people. He had protected them from the enemies that surrounded them, and he had provided for them so completely that he was able to say in Deuteronomy 2.7, The Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness, These 40 years God has been with you and you have not lacked a thing. They lack nothing. What kind of desert experience is that? They lacked nothing. But make no mistake, the way that God had chosen to provide for his people had clearly not been on their terms. From the Israelites' perspective, it had been a beatdown. And they spent a whole lot of time complaining about it. At many points, they were frustrated and fearful, often to the point of desperation, fearing for their lives. Things had not gone at all the way they would have chosen. Yet even in grievously frustrating their plans, God was doing a gracious work and was providing for them 
perfectly as he defines perfectly. God graciously told Israel here why he did what he did during the wilderness wanderings. Again, he didn't have to, but he did. He does that a lot in Scripture, by the way. I I find that instructive as a parent. I don't need to just always tell my children because I said so, because that's not what God does with me. He tells me a whole lot about his intentions, his purposes. He says in Deuteronomy 8.5, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Now the phrase, just as a man disciplines his son, should conjure up a lot of passages and a lot of ideas. But the one that I think is the most prominent on that theme is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. God says, you have not yet resisted, through the writer of Hebrews, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, of which all, that is all God's children, have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's a fairly powerful statement, right? Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and and actually live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. This is the purpose clause. He disciplines us for our good with the objective that we may share his holiness. And then he says, all discipline seems for the moment to be sorrowful, not joyful. Yet those who have been trained with it, trained by it afterwards, for those who have been trained with it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's a pretty neat set of objectives, right? For our good, that we may share his holiness, and that in the end we will experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you want that? I hope you do. I want that. All right. That is that that declaration about for your good is completely in keeping with the theme in Deuteronomy 8 because in Deuteronomy 8:16 God says, "In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and might test you to do good for you in the end." It's the same idea. In fact, I think the writer of Hebrews is keying on Deuteronomy Now, every earthly father should already understand the logic of disciplining a child for the child's good, right? When your two-year-old sees his first campfire that you just started, and he wants to go play with it, you very carefully 
very deliberately and with great determination frustrate his desire. And if he resists, not only does he not get his way with the fire, he gets punished to impress on him that the thing he wanted to do will produce a result he does not want. Now, at first, that two-year-old doesn't have a clue why you would do that. The fire is beautiful. It's amazing. It's the coolest thing he's ever seen. Why on earth would you not want him to play with it? What's wrong with you, Dad? You ever had your children ask you that? One of, one of mine asked me once if they had to obey me when I was acting crazy. But you know what your child needs in that scenario, with the fire at least. You know with great clarity that he must not get his way. See, he completely confuses blessing with curse and curse with blessing. He's got him completely mixed up. Fortunately, you have a higher level of power and sovereignty than a two-year-old. So you get your way and he doesn't get his. As a result, he gets to go through the rest of his life without burn scars from that particular campfire. And hopefully one day, he not only learns that fire isn't something to be trifled with, he also learns that when he was two years old, you knew what the heck you were talking about and he didn't. The writer of Hebrews points out that the discipline even of a sinful earthly father toward his children has, has good intentions behind it. Flawed, but good. But he explains that the discipline of God toward us as his children has perfectly good intentions behind it. God's discipline for us is motivated by his love for us as his children. It's a perfect love. It's a fierce love. It's an unbending love. And his expressed objective in disciplining you and me, even when that discipline strikes us as most grievous and sorrowful, is to bless us, to do good to us, and above all, to impart to us his character, his holiness. Can you grow in godliness and peace without God's painful and sorrowful Discipline. Can you grow in godliness if you get your way? You cannot. My friends, if God does not frustrate your intentions, in fact, if he does not inflict pain upon you, then you are not his child. I'm not making that up. That's what he said in Hebrews 12.8. If you're without his discipline, you are illegitimate children and not sons. And if that's the state that you're in today, then you will never know true life or true blessing until you become his child. If you are his child by faith in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior, then you have a guarantee from God that you might not choose to have. God says to you, I will discipline you. 
Every, everyone that I love, I discipline, and every son I receive, I scourge. Look up a scourge in a Bible encyclopedia sometime and tell me if you think that that hurts. God guarantees that he'll introduce frustration and pain in your life for your good that you may share his holiness. Now, here's the question. Do you believe that? Here's the more important question. Do you accept that? Now, I'm going to assume for a minute that you at least believe that God says it the way he presents it here and that he deals with his children in this way. Through painful discipline, he imparts holiness. Now, assuming you do believe it, where is the limit to what God can do to you that you don't like? How hard can he let things get in your life without violating the promise that his discipline is for your good? Where should the lines be drawn? What percentage of your life do you figure has to be difficult for you to grow in holiness? How often do your, do your own plans for your life need to be sidetracked or frustrated in order for you to learn and day by day to remember that the only real life that you have is your relationship with God? And what about injustice? Surely, God is not supposed to let his children experience injustice. Can God subject you to the kind of grievous injustice that he has placed upon Jeff Humphreys for seven years, sitting in a prison for a crime he did not commit on death row, and possibly to be executed any day. Do you think for a minute that God intends for you to be allowed to draw those lines? to determine how far he's allowed to go in order to make you more like Christ? To allow you to define what is just and what is not? No. He has no intention of letting you or me make those determinations. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways, are not my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God will not abrogate his role as God to you any more than you would abrogate your role as parent to your two-year-old. It would be unloving for him to do that and it would be catastrophic for you. He intends for us as his children to learn to be joyful Content, at peace in the knowledge that only He knows what we really need. Only He knows what real blessing is. We're like the child enticed by the fire. He's the Father who knows the difference between blessing and curse. And beloved, He is the only one who knows the difference between pain that destroys and pain that refines. We're not even capable of making that distinction. Are you okay with that? Guys upstairs, are you okay with that? Some of us are some of the time. But until we are all of the time, God makes it very clear that he's not intending to back off of the painful stuff. 
That's not a threat. It's a promise. It's a wonderful promise that the wisest and most loving father in the universe guarantees to every one of his children because he cares more about our holiness than our happiness. And we should be very pleased that he does. Now, I want to go back to verses 2 and 3 for a moment and drill down further into God's revealed purpose behind the 40-year act of discipline that he directed toward Israel. We've already seen that he said it was for their good, but he gets more specific. He says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Okay, so that's one purpose. And then he says again, He humbled you and let you be hungry. By the way, he didn't let him be hungry for long, right? If you, if you read the text. He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by all that proceeds out of the mouth of God, of the Lord. Now, twice in those two critical verses, Moses declares that God's intention is to, in, in keeping his people in the wilderness was to humble them. So the mechanism was humiliation through which he accomplishes the other more specific purposes. Now, I want you to understand that word humble. The Hebrew word that's translated here to humble is the word that means to afflict, to oppress, to make, to bow down. God is not talking about embarrassing us a little or taking us down a notch or two. He's talking about breaking us and making us to fall down before him in order that we may know what true life and true blessing is because there is no other way for us to know it. Are you okay with that? If you're his child by faith in Jesus Christ, then that's the way it's going to be, so you might as well be okay with it. And by the way, if Israel's experience is paradigmatic of how God deals with us, the painful part of his molding us into the image of Christ is not going to be the exception. It's going to be the rule. And considering the, the tenacity of our old sin nature, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. All right, so we get that, the, that humbling is painful. God's humbling, he, he says, has, has two purposes. The first purpose is, in Israel's case, was to test them, to know what was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandments or not. The second was to make them know that man does not live by bread alone, but by all that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, I'm going to take that second of those two purposes, the, the one on the bottom, and I'm going to bump that into next week, <laughs> because there's too much to say about that to finish it out this morning. And by the way, if you have struggled with being motivated to study the Word, please be here next week. Because what God has to say on that subject is highly motivational. The rest of this message is going to focus on that first purpose. 
to test Israel to prove, that means to prove, to confirm, whether they had it in their hearts to obey his commandments. So how had Israel done with God's 40-year test? Had they passed? Isn't that why God was about to let them into the land? Makes sense, doesn't it? Don't you think that's what Israel believed was going on at this point? They're thinking, okay, God, we know our parents didn't do so well with the whole fearing God thing, but a lot has changed since then. They were on the west side of the land, we're on the east side of the land. Okay, that's not so impressive. They had been spoiled by all that great food in Egypt. You know, the slave food, the leeks and onions that they complained so much about missing. But we've been wandering around in this desert since we were kids for 40 years, and all we've had to eat is manna. So we're tougher than they were, even though we've never made a brick in our lives. They didn't listen to you when you promised to fight their battles for them. We will. They were worried about giants. We're not. We're ready to trust you and serve you fully. By the way, that's exactly what Israel said to Joshua just as they were entering the land. We're, we're ready to trust God and serve him fully. We're going to obey everything you commanded. Just watch. We're ready now for all that milk and honey you promised. And oh, by the way, we're also hoping for some other menu options in the starches category. I believe Israel thought that they had submitted pretty well to God. That the humbling had had its, its effect and that by their reckoning they were ready for the fulfillment of God's promise. But let me ask again, had Israel passed God's test? Had they proven that they were willing and able to keep his commandments from the heart? Because that's what God said the test was to smoke out. How you end up answering that question is going to impact how you handle a whole lot of other passages in Scripture. It's very important that we suspend our preconceptions about how we think that answer should play out and look at what God actually says. We know that Israel had some problems during the wilderness and did some complaining. But we're tempted to conclude that they passed God's test of obedience in some relative fashion, at some lesser standard that was at least tolerable to God, and that's why he was going to let them into the land. Well, God provides his own assessment of Israel's behavior during the wilderness experience. He spells that assessment out in chapter 9, and guys, it isn't what we think it should be. In Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 7, he says to Israel, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them, the Canaanites who inhabited the land, out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of those nations that are in the land that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness, second time, it is not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, that was an unconditional covenant. Then a third time, he says, Know then... It is not 
because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess. For you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. How long? From the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, here on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, looking over into the land, from then until now, you have been a stubborn and rebellious people against the Lord. Okay. By the way, there is nothing in this text in Deuteronomy 9 that says God was using Israel to judge the Canaanites because Israel was better than the Canaanites. Carrie uh, made me think about that when we met on Friday. When you, when you look at the history of God using nations to judge nations, think about Sennacherib and the Assyrians when he used them to judge Israel, to carry him away into captivity. Was it because Sennacherib was a better law keeper than the, than the Israelites? No, I think not. Sennacherib didn't know Yahweh, and he didn't know squat about God's law, and he didn't care. He ended up mocking God and saying, huh, the reason that I defeated these Israelites is because their God is puny. So what did God do with him? He did away with him. Israel has nothing to pat themselves on the back about here. Okay, I'll ask the question one more time. Was God finally bringing Israel into the land of promise because they had passed his test of obedience from the heart? No. God answered the question, right? He answered with an emphatic, unambiguous no. At no point does God say that he's putting him in the land because of how well they've done. In fact, he says the exact opposite. Israel had failed miserably. And, and just in case you think I'm interpreting Deuteronomy 9 incorrectly on this score, I earnestly encourage you to read every word of Psalm 78. I don't have time to go through it the way I wanted to, but I'm going to flash a few up here, a few passages up here that you can look at while I'm talking. In Psalm 78, Asaph reviews in considerable detail the history of God's gracious and miraculous acts toward Israel and how Israel acted in response. He reviews God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, his parting of the sea, his provision in the wilderness, his gracious provision in bringing Israel into the land. And he reminds Israel that at every turn, they stubbornly rebelled against him. Even once they got into the land of promise. And then in verse 38 of Psalm 78, the psalmist takes this little parenthesis and he says, But God, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. That's the only reason that Israel survived. Grace. Do you suppose you would do better than Israel if he put you through the same test? You've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So you're much better equipped to meet God's expectations than they were, right? Yes on the equipping part, not so much on the performance part. 
The one and only basis upon which any of us stands holy before our God is grace. And the one and only righteousness that allows us to stand in his presence is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no other. When Jesus came across the rich young ruler and the man said, good, said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus said, There is no one good but God. In Romans chapter 3, when Paul is addressing the Jews' idea that they are somehow superior to the Gentiles, he says, Think again. Look back at God's testimony in the Old Testament. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who even so much as seeks after God the way he must be sought. Not even one. The only way that we stand before God is grace. All right. Since, since Israel had not proven that they were willing to obey God's commandments from the heart, but instead consistently proven the opposite, then why, on what basis, was God letting them into the land of promise at this point? Well, as with all the rest, he answers the question for us. He said back in Deuteronomy 9.5, by the way, he told them two reasons. God's using you to judge the nations that are in the land because they're very wicked and it's time to judge them. And then he said, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant, as I said, is an unconditional covenant. That means God swore by himself that he would fulfill it, and it was not contingent on what Israel would do. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. We are children of Abraham by faith. We are grafted in to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Threefold promise, land, seed, and blessing. I'll give you the land that, I, that, that I'm showing you, which was the land of Canaan. I will give you descendants that are so great in number, they're like the sands of the seashore or the stars of the heavens. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. That last part is fulfilled 100% and only in Jesus Christ. In Genesis 15, God expanded and amplified a little bit on the specifics of, how, of his uh, fulfillment of that covenant, especially the short-term fulfillment. And he, again, unconditionally told Abraham that there would come a time when Abraham's descendants would be in servitude to another nation for 400 years. And God would then judge that nation, and he would bring his people out of that nation. That nation, of course, is Egypt. By the way, this was a long time before the captivity, uh, before the, the uh, time in Egypt. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they, your descendants, shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites were actually the folks that dwelled right about where Israel was standing at the time this was written. They're in a little south of there. The Amorites and the Moabites were on the west side of the Jordan. And God was judging them too, as well as the Canaanites inside the land. In Genesis 15, God said, the day's going to come when I'm going to judge them. And it's going to come after about 400 years 
about four generations. And when it comes, this is what's going to happen. Okay, so it had to happen. Israel had to enter the land at this point. They had to. Because this promise wasn't contingent on their behavior. Just as the wilderness wanderings had been a test to confirm the the condition of Israel's hearts, so also the conquest of the land was going to be a test of the condition of their hearts. They had grumbled for 40 years and been rebellious in the wilderness. Now God was going to show them how they would handle power, prosperity, and material blessing. But Israel would not be allowed to stay in the land or even to fully occupy it unless they trusted in and obeyed God. And you know what? God knew in advance that they would not. By the way, if you flip over to Joshua chapter 24 for a second. After they were in the land and after they had conquered 60 cities fortified to the heavens by the hand of God, after God had conquered the cities, the people are saying to Joshua, we are ready to do everything God has said. This is great. Look at what he's given us. We're ready to do everything that he's said. And so Joshua in chapter 24, verse 14 says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. They're still carrying around idols that they had with them ever since Egypt. And they say, okay, we'll do that. And then verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. And that means he doesn't mean that there's no forgiveness in, in the long scheme. It means that he's going to deal with you. And he's going to carry through that promise about you perishing and not staying in the land. He meant what he said. When you get to the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, you find that there's a whole lot more real estate given to the curses. <laughs> That's because God knew that they weren't going to spend much time in the blessed category. All right. Israel had to enter the land, but their time in the land was going to be short if they did not obey God. And even, even while they were in the land... Uh, his promise to make them fruitful, to protect them from their enemies, to do all the wonderful things that were part of the, of the blessings, all that was conditional on their behavior, and they didn't get to experience very much of it. In the face of Israel's persistent rebellion against him, God faithfully preserved, provided for, and blessed his people. In Deuteronomy 4.31, it says, for the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. You know what you call that? Grace. In the end, God promised Israel a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. The new covenant isn't just New Testament. Old Testament. He promised that he would redeem and renew his people. He would make them holy, worthy to stand in his presence, in his kingdom forever. 
If you study the Old Testament prophets, you'll find that over and over and over again, God indicts Israel for their persistent, stubborn rebelliousness against his law. He warns them of severe judgments, and he ends up carrying out those judgments in fine detail. If you look at the siege of Jerusalem, it was a mess. But in the midst of God's declaration of impending judgment, every time, throughout all the prophets, he also promises that he will one day restore Israel, that he will turn their hearts to him, he will forgive their sins, he will bring them back to the land of Abraham, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will write his law in their hearts. He will make them his people forever. And you know what? Never, not once, are those promises of redemption based on Israel's performance. That's called grace. They're based on the de- declaration of God made in eternity past to create a people for his own possession, having nothing more to start with than mortal, fallen, depraved, sinful men like us. The Mosaic Covenant, the law, was always intended to be preamble preparation for the New Covenant. It was to show Israel their depravity in light of His holiness, and it was to show us our depravity in light of His holiness, so that all would see our need for God's Messiah, our one and only Savior. Perhaps the greatest and most central lesson in all of God's dealings with Israel in every shuffling of the deck that went on in the Old Testament is that unless God does it all, we're lost in our sins. A law given by God that was holy and righteous and good did not make people righteous. A wilderness experience in which we have no choice but to receive God's provision on his own terms will not make us righteous. A land of milk and honey where we actually like the provision we receive will not make us righteous. There is no situation that will fix what's wrong with us. God has to fix it. He promised that he would, and in Jesus Christ alone, he did. If you're here today, and you are depending on anything or anyone to get you right with God, except Jesus Christ, flee from whatever that is and cling to him. There is only one provision of righteousness. There is only one provision for forgiveness. There's only one provision that will allow you to stand spotless and blameless in the presence of a holy God, and that is Jesus Christ, his payment for your sin on the cross. If you have never trusted in him, trust in him today. I'm going to finish with one more brief exhortation. I'm sorry I've kept you late. This is quick. One of the most grievous hindrances, and I want to, again, appeal to everyone here for attention, especially the young folks. One of the most grievous hindrances that we create for ourselves as God's children is that we fail to recognize what he has already given to us. We squander our lives looking for blessing when we already have it. God's call to his people in Deuteronomy 8 is, remember, do not forget what I have already done for you. Stop looking for God to bless you, guys. If you're his child, he already has. Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, 
We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If God took everything away from you today, except his forgiveness, his redemption, his gift of eternal life, your relationship with him, would you lose anything of consequence? So what are we looking for? Freedom from pain? You can't have that this side of heaven. Unless you want to forfeit real life, real blessing, real peace. You with me? You can't have that. Because if you had it, you'd give up everything that matters. And you know what? If you belong to Christ, God's not going to let you forfeit those things. Christianity is not hedonism. It's not the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It is a laser-focused pursuit of Jesus Christ at any and all cost. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. Is that okay with you? God's at work in us to teach us that construct of reality, to make us understand, accept, rest in, and rejoice in the knowledge that real life is found only in him. May we say, as David said in Psalm 16, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forever. Father, teach us these things. Burn them into our hearts. Lord, I pray for my children and for, every, for the child of every parent in this, in this room that they would know what real life is. That they would, they would embrace what you bring into their lives, however difficult it is, knowing that you were at work in their hearts to teach them what real life is. May they not be, may none of us be satisfied with the pathetic imitations that this world throws at us. May we cling to Jesus Christ and be satisfied only in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.